with that, we are going to start a very, very short series as a fellowship group called God is God. And what we're going to attempt to do in this three-week series is to look at key attributes of the Lord. And uh, kind of the reason for doing this is to remove a little bit of the spookiness or the foreignness of the Old Testament. We want to see how all scripture is profitable for us, including um, sections that we might not naturally gravitate towards. And this will also help us when we uh, jump into our study next year in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Old Testament. So tonight we'll be studying a very familiar passage. We'll be looking at Isaiah 6 and the holiness of God. Um, But before we begin, let me go ahead and pray for our time. Let's pray. God, we need your help. Father, to pierce through anything that clouds our minds or distracts us. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself through your word, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth to not only tell us of Christ, but to beckon us to place our faith in him and to follow him. Lord, I pray that we would have a greater sense, a greater understanding of the gravity of your holiness, that it would be so immense, Lord, that it would cause us to be changed and transformed. And so use your word uh, as a harpoon to sink into our hearts and draw us to you, that we might worship and adore our Lord and Savior. We ask for you to do the work only you can do, Lord, to soften our hearts and mold us like your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) A.W. Tozer is famous for this punchy and provocative line. You might have heard of it. He writes in one of his books, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it is no exaggeration to say everything, everything in our lives can be traced back to a belief about God. You see, if we see God as magnificent and wise, then we're more likely to submit and listen to him than if we dismiss him as tedious, insignificant. If we think and perceive God in our heads as kind, loving, and patient, then we're more inclined to approach him than if we've written him off as distant and cold. And even our shortcomings, our sins that we commit, are tied back to, fundamentally, a belief about God or a misbelief. You know, we might shrug our shoulders at line. Why? Well, it's not a big deal because God is not a big deal. Or we indulge in pornography. Why? Because in that moment, we think God is oblivious to what we do in secret or we're convinced that he just won't do anything about it. And if our actions are an outworking of our convictions, then we can, with much accuracy, kind of map out the trajectory of our lives based on how we answer Tozer's question. Say whatever you want, 
But the bottom line is this. What you believe will be proven, will be evidence, will be manifested in what you do, how you live. Now, maybe for some here, we get hung up on the second half of that quote. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we wonder, is what I think about God really that significant? Because at least on a day-to-day basis, according to my experience, it seems like earning a larger paycheck or finding a girlfriend, boyfriend, that's what really matters. But realize, even these pursuits declare something about God. They tell of a pecking order that perhaps money, career, romance are higher up on the ladder. They expose you do believe in God. It's just the God of comfort, work, a God of relation, not necessarily the God of the Bible. So at the outset, let me ask, Praxis, what are you thinking? And more importantly, does it line up with Scripture, or have you fashioned a God after your own imagination, your own desires? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's why we're taking time in our short series to consider what God discloses about himself. We're going to examine select attributes of God from the Old Testament because it is consequential for everything else. So tonight we start with the attribute that I would argue is the closest to his very essence, his very being, holiness. Holiness. There's a lot of passages we can turn to, but we'll camp out on probably the most popular one, Isaiah 6. Now, as you're turning there, I will say I do not have an outline for our text, as you can see in your bulletins, and that is in part intentional, especially when the passage is a narrative, a story. Sometimes our study of God and his word should be less like a science project and more like soaking in a stunning sunset. Sometimes we need to suspend the data analysis of point one, point two, and just enjoy the beauty of the scene. To be still and know God is God. And if there is any text that produces that kind of awe and wonder, it's Isaiah 6. In a day and age where truth is purportedly relative, Morals, subjective, holiness considered derogatory, where our attention is obfuscated, our affections divided by so many things, we as Christians, we need to recapture a proper view of God in all his holiness. So follow along as I read our passage for us. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Now some context, Isaiah is a prophet, a big and important one, as you can tell by the length of his fat book. There's 66 chapters in this chunky one. And another deduction you can make from the size of this book is that Isaiah must have had a very extensive, long career as a prophet, spanning the reign of multiple kings. Now, as a prophet, he spoke, of course, on behalf of God advising the people, counseling the rulers, warning them even when they started to go wayward. Well, in Isaiah 6, the year is approximately 740 BC during the reign of Uzziah, or more accurately, the end. A little bit about King Uzziah, he was a beloved king. He's one of the good guys linked to and associated with King David himself. Uzziah ascends the throne at the tender age of, get this, 16. You know, when I was 16, I just started driving, and I think I had finally had my braces removed. So as teenagers, obviously, me and Uzziah were both equally impressive. But Uzziah, he dons the crown at 16, and he rules as king for the next 52 years. 52 years. And the nation thrives under his reign. The land is farmed well, it flourishes. The army grows in, not, uh, in numbers and uh, military advancements. The boundaries of the nation, they're expanded. The economy is booming. These are times of unprecedented peace and prosperity. Just imagine that kind of run, 52 years. That's longer than all of us have been alive. And it could be possible that for the entirety of your life, from your young adult days into raising a family and then finally retiring as a senior citizen, to experience and know nothing else but stability, safety, and wealth under Uzziah's leadership. I mean, if you were Uzziah yourself, it'd be hard not to be proud. And that's exactly what happened surveying the land, recounting his many accomplishments over many decades, Uzziah's head is inflated with pride. He is blinded by success. Look at all that I've done. It's all me and there's nothing I can't do. And sadly, at the end of his life, such arrogance leads to his tragic downfall. You can read about this on your own time. Second Chronicles 26 records his demise that against God's clear instruction and the protest of his closest companion, Uzziah defiantly offers, he burns incense in the temple, which is a sacred responsibility reserved strictly for the priests. 
And for Uzziah's presumption, God strikes him with leprosy. Blotchy patches break out across his forehead, and Uzziah is rendered unclean. He's disqualified from the throne. He's resigned to wait out the rest of his days in isolation. He is a rotting corpse before he's dead. And then he dies, and the kingdom starts to crumble. The nation tailspins into moral decay, turning from God. Peace and prosperity are now threatened by imposing enemies, these foreign powerhouses itching to invade and conquer this leaderless nation. And the people, well, they are plunged into panic. 52 years, and now our king is gone. Who's going to lead us? Who's going to protect us? What will we do now that Uzziah is dead? And that setting is a stern warning because Uzziah's demise is a result of losing sight of God. He had started so well, a man after God's own heart, just like David, but in his last twilight years, he took his gaze off of the Lord to become his own Lord, and it led to his own unraveling. What Uzziah needed is what Isaiah is about to show us, a holy view of God. Now, the setting of our passage is also, yes, a stern warning, but it is also a firm encouragement. The light shines brightest in the darkness because it's in the year of mourning and confusion Isaiah sees the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, what you have to understand is this is not the usual way you keep time. If you're familiar with the Old Testament or you read 2 Kings, the customary way to date events is according to the reign of the king. So you stumble upon Verses that talk about in the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat or in the 23rd year of King Joash. But here, Isaiah intentionally frames the year to draw a comparison. Who's dead? Who's alive? You see, the best of men are still at best men. Leaders, even good ones, will come and go. Nations rise and fall. But against the backdrop of a human king's passing, there is an eternal Lord, a divine sovereign. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the king that never dies. There might not be someone on Israel's throne, but God still reigns on his. Praxis, take heart you might find yourself in a similar situation, circumstance. Maybe someone you really respected, trusted, has failed you. Or you find yourself nervous about the uncertainty of the future, job prospects, marriage. Perhaps you're racked with grief, with anxiety, having suffered the loss of a loved one. But listen, our desperation is meant to launch us upward to something greater. It shows us that there is only one who can truly save and sustain because only one is truly sovereign. God. 
God is worthy of our trust because he is fully in control. Notice in verse one, he's not pacing. He's not worried. No, God sits. He sits on his throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. What's this about? Well, at a wedding, you see the bride radiating, right? Decked out in her dress with a train flowing behind her. And she wears this special garment to signal that a special person is present. Everyone in attendance immediately recognizes she is the most significant person in that room. Well, on this occasion, in Isaiah's vision, it's no different. God is the most significant person in the room. In the temple, the only thing visible is the train, the hem, the lowest part of God's robe. Just try picturing that for a minute. Walking into a room only to be suffocated by endless fabric. I mean, the visual is nonsensical. It's absurd, right? But it makes a clear point. If you can only see the bottom, what does that tell you about the top? If the train be this massive, what does it say about the God who sits above? Isaiah lifts his gaze higher, only to marvel more at what his eyes see. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Now, these are mysterious, angelic creatures that are found nowhere else in the scriptures but here. Their name literally means burning ones, burning ones, which is, I think, also an appropriate name for some of you at Praxis, but uh, just kidding, kind of. And yet, the name of the seraphim clues us in on their appearance. They must be blazing, bursting. Perhaps they're clothed in flames or wearing fiery garments. We're not sure. And to add to the intrigue, we discover they have six wings. Six wings. Two wings enable them to fly. Two cover their face because no one can look upon God and live. And two cover their feet. Perhaps as a sign of humility before their creator. Their willingness to go and do as instructed. Now from top to bottom, if we ever encountered the seraphim, we would be in awe, stunned at such angelic beings. But listen, the burning ones, the burning ones are in awe of something else, someone else, the burning glory of God. You see, what's most fascinating about the seraphim is not what they look like, but what they sing. Isaiah records it in verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The way we speak is determined by the setting we're in, right? You know, if you're just chilling with some homies, your vocabulary is gonna be more casual. You'll use slang. But if you're giving an academic report or a presentation at work, well then all of a sudden your speech becomes polished, precise, 
I mean, I've had people tell me when I preach, my voice changes, that my speech is more refined, using proper grammar, SAT words. I've been told I even sound semi-intelligent, which is a little rude, you know? Like, I don't know why semi has to be included. Hurts my feelings. Yeah, I'm fine with all of it because when I talk to you outside of the pulpit, I'm not preaching at you. But behind the pulpit, the opportunity to open God's word and declare, thus says the Lord, is a divine, unique privilege. Your speech reflects your situation. And the seraphim here find themselves in a serious one, in the presence of Almighty God. A God is so vast and tremendous, it affects even their words. Now, in English, we have superlatives like best, adverbs like very for emphasis. So if our buddy Corey wanted to communicate and tell me, Alan, you are my best friend because you are very nice, I would reply, thank you very much, right? But in Hebrew, there are no superlatives. So what would they do? If they wanted to stress something, they would repeat the word. So for example, a land filled with pit pit expresses it's a field with many pits. Gold gold in Hebrew is how you say pure gold. Now doubling for emphasis, that happens quite frequently, but not tripling, not three times. You see, it is not adequate to declare God's holiness once or twice. God is thrice holy, holiness to the max, if you will. And no other attribute is highlighted like this. The seraphim don't cry out, love, 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 even though we know God is love. They don't announce power, 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 even if he is omnipotent, unparalleled in strength. They attribute pounding Isaiah's eardrum, holy, holy, Holy. Heaven's symphony rings loud with the seraphim shouting this back and forth, filling all audible space. Now, if holiness is the hallmark attribute of God, it is absolutely crucial. It is imperative that we understand what it is, what it means. And that's when we run into a dilemma. We're confronted with a problem because it is difficult to define, right? Maybe we think of someone in clean white clothes who never watches rated R movies and listens only to hymns. Maybe we think of a friend who's always encouraging, always has fresh insight from their Bible reading and then we'll ask you about yours. And while some of that may be associated, may be part of what it means to be holy, it is still a caricature. It is still incomplete and shallow. So let me try to explain that. And we're going to tread into deeper theological waters. But the most basic definition for holy is to cut, to set apart. The idea is one of devotion, where something is earmarked, sectioned off from the world, and then designated for God. And that's why we encounter various holy objects in the Bible. There's holy ground, holy temple, holy city, holy hands. 
Remove the adjective holy, and it's just your normal run-of-the-mill stuff. But it becomes holy when set apart and dedicated for divine purposes. That's why God charges his people, you should be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and I have separated you from the people that you should be mine. This is also then what distinguishes God's other attributes, that there is a holy love, holy wrath, holy grace that are categorically different from the world's version because they are distinct, separated, and defined by God himself. You could say then, holiness is the linchpin. But what happens when we apply the term holy to God? It's not like God is set apart for God. Sure, in a sense, God is distinct, separate from the world. He is transcendent in a class of his own, but then you have said nothing more than who he is inherently, who he is by nature. And there we hit the ceiling of human language because ultimately we end up back at the starting line, finding ourselves redundant. You see, at the bottom of this theological dive, to say God is holy is to say God is God. Back in Exodus 3, 14, when Moses asked for a name to tell the people who sent him, what's the name that God provides? Moses, tell them, I am who I am. God is God. And when the angels cry out, holy, 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 in essence, they are declaring, you are God, you are God, you are God. And such a confession is so potent, so electric, it's almost enough to bring the whole place down. Verse four, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now what's interesting thus far is the discrepancy between what Isaiah says he has seen and what he actually spills ink describing. You follow? In verse one, he says he has seen the Lord, but then from verse one on, Isaiah hasn't mentioned anything about what God looks like. There's nothing about the Lord's face or his other features. All Isaiah has supplied is descriptions of God's surroundings. The throne is high and exalted. Garment floods the temple. The seraphim hover and shout. The building is buckling, the smoke spewing. But Isaiah has been silent on describing God himself. Why? It's because these vivid details are still a shadow to the substance, to the profundity of God himself. There is an infinite chasm between creator and his creation that not even language can bridge. And Isaiah is reaching, stretching for words that will suffice only to find them lacking. And so he does his best to describe the divine with his limited human faculties. 
if the throne is high and lifted up, what might that tell us about the sovereign God who sits above? If the temple is brimming with his robe, what might that reveal about his splendor, his sheer immensity? If the sinless burning ones shrink back from his shining presence, what might that announce about God's own purity? If the voice of these angelic creatures can rattle the foundation, why, what might that proclaim about the power God possesses when by his voice he speaks creation into existence? You see, in refusing to describe God directly, Isaiah is describing God. Do you feel this? Can you envision yourself there? Insert yourself into the scene, standing next to the prophet. Over this elevated throne, angels hover and boom, holy, holy, holy. And it's as if each time another bomb is detonated, an earthquake rips through the floor. The explosion throws smoke into the air until it swallows up the whole scene. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, all your senses are awakened and overloaded. Nothing is left unshaken. It is complete and utter pandemonium, almost unbearable where you feel like you are on the brink of melting into a puddle or being cut in two. At least Isaiah does. The prophet whimpers in response in verse five. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin opens up his seminal work like this. He writes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And Isaiah is experiencing this, that in seeing God rightly, he sees himself rightly. Notice the prophet does not ask, well, if God exists, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I'm not disparaging those who are genuinely curious, but such a question is not even on the radar for Isaiah. The starting point in approaching God is so drastically different that the thought would never cross his mind. No, as he takes in the holiness of God, it's automatic, he's undone. You see, if you're plot before a roaring lion, you're not calculating all the ways you could respond. Like, hmm, I guess a couple of options are available. I could play dead or I could try my luck and run away. There is perhaps a 37% chance of survival. No, before the majestic and the terrifying, your response is instinctual. It's intuitive. Isaiah's soul, it's crushed. His heart throbbing. He is not forced or mechanical. Isaiah's reflex, beholding God, leads him to shout, woe is me. Woe is me. This is a curse, and there's nothing light about it. Jesus 
uses these very words to condemn heathen cities. Woe to you. He condemns self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you. Isaiah himself has passed such judgment against the wicked just the chapter four and chapter five. But here, here when engaged with the holiness of God, he lumps himself into the same pile. Woe is me. God, curse me. Let me be damned. I am lost. I am ruined. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Have you ever wondered why the lips? I'll tell you why. Because it represents Isaiah's role, his identity, maybe what he's proudest of, I mean, after all, what is a prophet but the mouthpiece of God? And yet, before the Lord's holiness, Isaiah is struck by how he is rotten to the core. As Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what good is a prophet with filthy lips? So Isaiah confesses, even the best part of him is defiled. Do you see how wholesale and wretched sin is? What you take pride and boast in, where your confidence lies, it is still marred and tainted. That your brilliant mind and high IQ, your athletic prowess, your work accolades, your charisma person, uh, and popularity, your area of expertise, your greatest ability, they can't earn your standing, your righteousness before God. They can't measure up to his perfection, his holy standard. The best of you, friends, cannot make up for the worst of you. Isaiah recognizes he is devastated because a prophet is what he does, but a sinner is who he is. That's one thing if a murderer confesses this, right? Like, okay, makes sense. You've killed people. It's another thing if it's your average Joe. You might think, okay, mixed bag, some good, some bad too. Yet the prophet of God, he's the best of the bunch, the godliest in the entire nation, and yet he renounces himself. Because here's the crux of the matter. That comparison is only among peers. It's an assessment, an evaluation between you and those you dwell in the midst of. Sure, on the horizontal level, you and I, we can always find someone we're better at. But God does not grade on a curve. And when your, when your gaze is directed vertically, when your eyes have seen the king, what can you do but echo the prophet? As the seraphim's words still reverberate in his chest, holy, 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 Isaiah feels his heart battered, unholy, unholy, unholy. Friends, do you? Do you see God as thrice holy? Listen, this is not just about getting our theology on point, being accurate in doctrine. No, our understanding of God's holiness is practical for everyday life. 
God charges elsewhere in Scripture, be holy as I am holy. So think about that. If you think God and his holiness to be small and inconsequential, then of course your own holiness will be small and inconsequential. The truth is your holiness will never rise above your perception of God's. Without a high view of God, you will have a low view of Christ and the gospel. Without a high view of God, you will have a low view of sin. Oh, it's just a slip of a tongue. Only a lapse of moral judgment. Merely a burst of anger. It's all so incidental. But listen, the holier the God, the stronger the magnifying glass. Now I get it. This is a bitter pill to swallow. But the purpose is not just to beat us up and bring us down for us to sulk in despair. It is grace, friends. Praxis, it is grace to feel the weight of your guilt because it prepares you. Confession is the first step towards conversion. Jesus preaches, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen, it's when you are ruined by your sin, God is ready to redeem. In the thick of deafening voices, trembling foundations, gassy fumes, in the noise of all this chaos, God's ears, they are tuned to the broken. Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The king of kings latches on to the prophet's feeble cry and he responds. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is unexpected. Shocking. Because grace always is. Isaiah thinks the story ends in verse 5 with his destruction certain. But God initiates. God intervenes. A seraph is sent to take a coal. And mind you, a coal so hot, even the burning one has to use tongs to grab it. And this angel then puts the coal on Isaiah's lips. The very point of his impurity. I mean, forget washing my mouth out with soap. Bring out the burning coal, right? If my mom did this to me growing up, I would never say a bad word. I would never say anything, period. We all know the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of your body. And to have a smoldering coal pressed against the lips would cause the flesh to bubble and sear. The thought is horrific. So we might ask, okay, is this how we deal with our sin? We just have to subject ourselves to sticking our face into a barbecue pit? Is this how guilt is taken away, how sin is atoned for? Self-harm, mutilation? No. It illustrates the painful process of repentance. 
and the price that had to be paid. It's symbolic because where is this coal taken from? An altar. What happens at an altar? An animal is offered. A sacrifice is burnt. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, this one preaches how death has taken place. The coal pressed then is the sacrifice applied. Isaiah, some livestock died in your place. But this substitute is insufficient. It's a placeholder. Because as the author of Hebrews tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. It's a preview, a precursor for what's to come. It foreshadows a greater and fuller sacrifice required. And do you remember when it arrives? Behold, the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. God does better than send a seraphim. He will send his own son. You see, the apostle John, in his gospel, he quotes from this passage, Isaiah 6, in John 12, verse 41. And there we discover that the glory Isaiah speaks of, the glory Isaiah sees and is startled by, belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, hundreds of years later, the Son of God descends his throne to dwell among unclean people that the robe that once filled the temple is traded for a servant's tunic to wash dirty feet on bending knees, that the cries of angelic beings, holy, 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 is replaced by cries from the crowd, crucify, crucify, crucify him. And there on the tree, the fullness of his glory culminates. Yet again, Jesus is high and lifted up, only this time in utter humiliation, hung from the cross. The smoke of darkness envelops the world. After his last breath, the temple veil is torn in two. The foundations of the earth shakes. The death of God's only son to make many others sons. That through repentance and faith in this sacrifice, in Jesus Christ, we can hear declared, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Friends, this is the holiness of God on full display. This is the holiness of God, what distinguishes and separates God from any other, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gift of our salvation. And how shall we respond? What are we to say? Well, we take a cue from Isaiah, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. For the first time in this encounter, God speaks. And notice, there's no command, no coercion. There's no do this or don't do that. Sometimes application should freely flow. And God asks a question, and Isaiah's response is just as straightforward. 
There's no bargaining or waffling, no vows or attempts to do better, no reviewing terms and conditions. Instead of dragging his feet, Isaiah steps forward with exuberance. And I find this whole interaction both encouraging and humbling, comforting and convicting. Because on one end of the spectrum, God is not asking anything unique of Isaiah or of any of us. He doesn't have a different set of requirements based on your skills, your smarts, or years of service. He's not looking for anything special, any one special. God's question is encouraging because it is simple. It is one of calling. Who will represent me? Who will live for me? It's available to all. And yet, at the same time, while not catered for the individual, while not difficult to understand, this is the most challenging question because in asking one thing, God is asking for everything. God demands complete and total representation, the entirety of your life. And Isaiah, he rises to the occasion. Here am I. Literally, behold me. From beholding God to presenting himself. And this passage, and specifically this verse, verse 8, is often preached to promote missions, as some of you might have heard. You know, just a little push-push to get us consider flying out to South Africa or China to share the gospel. And while there are principles here, for missions, I would argue that application is too narrow, too limited, because this passage is not just about global missions, rather everyday ministry. It is a beholding God to then presenting ourselves. We are always called to be ambassadors for Christ even if our context changes, whether we pack our bags and relocate to another country or we stay local in our city. As Piper says, mission exists because worship. Hear that? Worship doesn't. And that's what Isaiah has been trying to get us to see. He is not slamming us with a sledgehammer of guilt so we'll get to work. The driving force behind this passage is not doing, but basking, delighting. If you have been where Isaiah has been, if you have felt the pulverizing heaviness of God's holiness with no answer for your sin, if you have been lavished with the mercy of the gospel, pardoned from condemnation to salvation, then you understand everything after woe is me is a cherry on top, is undeserved favor. It's grace. It's seeing the holiness of the Lord until you are both captivated and compelled to worship. And then between you and God, let the chips fall where they may be. If that's being sent to an unreached people group in a foreign nation, praise God. If that's being sent into an entertainment industry or tech company to herald Christ, praise God. If that's being sent to hang out with your friends, minister in the church, praise God. Wherever you are, be all there. 
Bask in the glory of God because your worship will shape your mission, which is really just another way of saying what comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important.